the Word of God from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let us pray. Enable us, O Lord, to grasp the fullness, the freedom, and the faith of these words through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Be our teacher, Lord, and communicate with our hearts through Christ our Savior. Amen. In the gymnasium of the small college where I attended and grew, there was a sign in the locker room that said something I'll never forget. It called on us not to be cheerful losers. I went out of the college with that motto ringing in my ears, don't be a cheerful loser. And over the years I've wondered whether Christians have not gotten too used to losing. We've become good losers, haven't we? Maybe that's why we haven't attracted more people to our Savior. It's become a way of life, almost a virtue, a matter of humility and faith. But Christ was not a loser at all. We read of him that God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. Christ was a winner. And every follower of his is also called to be a victor, a winner, not a loser. To be a winner requires a mindset of victory. That's why I'm so glad the choir sang that tremendous anthem. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory. Winning is an attitude, whether in sports or in life or in faith. How do you get the attitude of winning? It comes from this crowning climax of Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed intercedes for us? What this passage is saying to us is that for the believer to be defeated, is both foolish and faithless. To be a winner means to be wise and believing. This passage leads us up the hill of God's truth to the summit 
which we will reach next week, when we discover that we are to be more than conquerors through him that loved us. But now, let's lay the base for being winners. That's what Christ wants you to be. What is the base? Well, it rests on two mammoth propositions. One in 33 and one in 34. One for the now and one for the judgment day. One present, one to come. One for time, one for eternity. Look at 33, and the essence of it is this. That the only one who can accuse you is the very one who justifies you. Is it not, after all, Christian friend, the reason why you're often despairing and losing in spirit? Is it not because someone is accusing you or finding fault with you? That's what has to be eliminated from your life, that spirit of accusation. That's one of the great drawbacks to a Christian's sense of triumph. Now look, there are only three parties that could be accusers to you. There's Satan. Satan is called in Revelation the accuser of the brethren. Have you felt his attack? Job did. Satan came to God and accused Job. And you saw how God dealt with that. Satan came to God and accused Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. He accused him so heavily that <clears throat> Joshua was covered with iniquity, with vile garments, and with shame. But when God got through with Satan, Joshua was covered with beautiful raiment, with a mitre on his head, and all his iniquity was gone. How can Satan be an accuser? Is it not he who transgressed the law of God in the first place? Who aspired to the place of God? Is it not Satan who has himself fallen from fellowship with God? What does he know of the human heart, of righteousness? What right does he have to accuse anyone, none whatsoever? He is a false accuser. And he must be known to be that. Another would-be accuser is people, yourself included. We can accuse ourselves with over-scrupulosity, can we not? Finding fault with our own selves overly much. Ecclesiastes says, don't be overly righteous. We can also hear the accusations of men and women. And we can allow their critical, judgmental spirit to rob us of our victory. In fact, Satan can stand behind them, speaking through them as a mouthpiece, and destroying us. But who are men to be accusers? Do men know the reins of human hearts? Do men try men's spirits? Can the human heart perceive another heart so deeply as to accuse him? No. Only God searches the heart. There is only one accuser. It is God. He is the accuser because accusation rests on law. It's a legal 
term here. And God's relations with men are on the basis of law. Accusations come out of the breaking of the laws of God, and the non-believer will ultimately stand under the judgment of God because he broke the laws of God and there was no sacrifice or penalty paid for his sin. That will be his accusation. So God is the only one who has given law. He gave it meticulously. Every precept of his law rises out of his own inerrant, inspirational activity. The same one who has the sole right to accuse is the one who justified. Who shall bring any charge or accuse God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now you remember from the first five chapters of this book, what the meaning of justification is. God pronounces a person righteous and holy and attributes his own righteousness and justice to him and treats him as if he is perfect. The action of God in justifying a person is his own. It's not a cooperative action with the person. He does it. It is God who justifies. Cease trying to justify yourself, friend, you who are trying to do it. God does it, and he does it on purpose, and he does it alone, and he does it forever. Whoever has received the justifying grace of God will never again come under the condemnation or accusation of God because he is utterly just and righteous. It is inconceivable for God, who at one point in history pronounced a person righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, ever again to accuse or to lay any charge against that Christian. Utterly unthinkable. Why? Because God is just. The very attributes of God that worked against you when you were outside of Christ and before you were justified, that is the justice of God, stood as a mighty threat over your being, something you would have to answer. But when once you are sheltered into the arms of Christ and his love, then the justice of God is your guarantee. Because after that, we only have to cry, God is faithful, and he will not condemn that which once he has justified. Here then is one of the great massive bulwarks of your winning attitude. Who can accuse me? It is God that justified me. Now that saying, it is God that justifies, paralyzes every accusation whether it comes from Satan, from self, from others. Paralyze it with that great truth. It is God that justifies. One word from the living God is worth a thousand words of men's heckling. This great word is like a boulder in the sea, and the waves of men's accusations may pound against it, but it will not be moved. 
in Christ. You are a winner. And you must not receive accusation from any source. The only one who has a right to do it is the one who justifies you, Christian friend. Now look at the other great massive bulwark, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Here the word means who is the condemning one the judge. And the Greek makes it clear that it is only one person. There is a article pointing to the person. Who is the judge? Meaning there could not possibly be any more than this one. And we know, do we not, who the judge is? We read from the lips of Jesus in John 5, 27, these words. The Father hath life in himself, and he has given the Son to have life in himself and to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In other words, the Father, who is the judge of all things, has committed the function of judging into the hands of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is therefore the judge of the universe. Who is the judge is the question of verse 34. And the answer really ought to be not a question at all, but a statement. It is Christ Jesus who died. That is, that's the judge. That's the same thing we read in John 5, 27. It is Christ Jesus. It points to him, the very one who would have the right to judge, who is the only judge appointed by the Father, is the one who has done all these things for us. Now whenever you think of the life of Christ, you must think of it as existing for you. If you did not live and breathe and need, Christ would not have entered the world at Bethlehem. There would have been no Calvary. All of the things that the Savior did are in your behalf. Here, Paul describes the ladder he climbed for you that has four rungs on it. He says he stepped on the first rung, he died. It is Christ Jesus who died. He climbed the hill of Calvary. When he did so, everything became different for us. Life, death, sin, heaven. Everything different because he died. But Paul doesn't leave him as a dead savior. He goes on to say, who was raised from the dead, and I like it better in the King James, yea, rather raised from the dead, as if he wants to move on beyond the dead Christ to the living Christ. That's where the center of focus is, for Christ is not dead. He is alive and raised from the dead. And when he was raised, that's the second rung of the ascent of Christ up the ladder for you. When he was raised, 
That meant that all his claims that he had made through his life and his words were all validated as true. That meant that the great sacrifice he had offered to the Father on our behalf for the penalty of our sins and to purchase for us a place in heaven was accepted by God. That meant that we, our justification before God is complete. In Romans 1.4 we read that by the resurrection of the dead, of Christ from the dead, we are justified. It doesn't mean that our justification came from the resurrection, but that the resurrection validates and publishes it out so that now we can wear our justification as a bulwark over ourselves. We know it is certain because God did not allow him to remain in the grave, but raised him up for us all. No wonder we can be victors since Christ has done all these things for us. The very one to whom the judgment of us has been committed is the one who climbed the four-rung ladder for us. See the third rung. He is even at the right hand of God. Not a dead Christ, but a living one. Not only a living one, but a enthroned one at the place of authority next to the Father. He is there. Place of power. And from that marvelous place the blessed Son of God administers and governs all things. He is the one who holds the world in His hands and adjusts the events and things and harmonizes them that they would finally come to the ultimate good of all his own people. All things work together for good to those that love God. Only because Christ is seated at the right hand of God can we say that all things are in his hands. Ah, oh, seated he was. And the picture of Christ seated there is a glorious one. That means that he's finished his work. You don't sit down until you're done. When Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, every sacrifice on our behalf has been completed. All is final and finished. Nothing may be added to what Christ has done. He does not need to rise and offer a new sacrifice for every sinner that repents. Each time you sin and call out for forgiveness as a believer, Christ does not again offer up the sacrifice of blood in your behalf. He is seated at the right hand of God. And he thereby climbs to the fourth rung. He makes intercession for us. He indeed, it says, intercedes. And by that it means that all of the energies of the exalted Christ are engaged for your benefit. He is not there idly watching the world in passive helplessness. But the living, reigning Christ is channeling to you next to the Father, all of the mercies and graces of heaven 
that, that your fingertips may be every resource you need. Don't think of Christ as pleading with a reluctant father to give you that which God does not want to give you. That's not the picture. It is more that the father sees in Jesus all believers and gives to Christ all that is needed for those believers and those graces pass through Christ to us, through the head to the body, so that he is there interceding. That is, he is the conduit by which the graces of God flow to the believing life. That's why in Hebrews there is the connection between his ability to save to the uttermost and his living to make intercession. Since he is making intercession, it says he's able to save to the uttermost. And the idea is that a believer who is in need to have wrinkles taken out of his life, sinful things which he would wish to be rid of, applying to Christ who is now interceding at the right hand of God, may have abundantly and completely and fully access to everything that Christ can offer so that he may be saved to the very uttermost. It is possible, therefore, and highly desirable and the will of God that we who are in Christ should be more and more free of sin and more and more filled with righteousness as we tap this marvelous channel of the intercession of Christ to us of the graces and mercies of God needed for victorious, winning life. There then is the other massive bulwark. On these two rest the truth of the winning life. The only one who can accuse you is the one who has justified you. And the only one who can condemn you is the one who is even now living to pour his benefits into you. I ask you, therefore, to make sound reasoning the basis of your triumph in Christ. We don't become winners by psyching ourselves up to be winners or by simply doing mental gymnastics. Yes, we're a winner convincing ourselves. No, that's not the point. This triumph of ours rests on reality. God justifies and Christ is alive interceding for us. That is the base of Christian victory. I want to make just three brief applications of this truth with which we may meditate the rest of this day. The first is, let us be careful as Christians not to accuse, but always to affirm each other. How unwittingly Peter became a mouthpiece of Satan when he accused Jesus, saying, Master, it shall not be so with you. You won't go to the cross. That was an accusation against Jesus' judgment. And he became an instrument of the devil. You may mean well. 
You may think you are doing it for the well-being of others, but in fact, when you accuse another, you cannot know his motives. You cannot know what is deep in his heart and why it is he is doing what he is doing. Rather than finding fault and looking for something which you can accuse, see what you can edify and build up and reinforce in the life of one another. What would happen in this congregation if we became committed to the victory of one another? We determined that we were going to help each other be winners in Christian living. What would happen to us? Can you picture the excitement? If we put away all criticism, fault-finding, accusation, and committed ourselves to the success of one another. What joy! This city would take notice of this church. And the second application of these great truths. Put some confidence into your faith. What value do these promises of God have if you mistrust them, if they're printed here on paper and true in the nature of things, but if you do not appropriate them and use them as actual pillars in your life, where is the usefulness? You've got to take your faith and begin to put confidence in it. Instead of seeing yourself as a continual loser, begin to see yourself as one who has been redeemed and who has God justifying him, and who has a sure and certain hope of eternal life, and whom God will never condemn, but will certainly welcome into the precincts of heaven. I think we need, therefore, this balance. We must see ourselves as sinners, utterly worthless and vile in the sight of God. No question about that. We know how sinful we are. And if God should take his hand away from us, for one moment we would be undone. But don't major there. The major part of the Christian life is this. Yes, I am a worthless sinner, yes, but that's not the last word about me. God in his grace has come and redeemed me. And I am, what is the word in verse 33? Who shall bring any charge against Presbyterians? No. Against those who believe? No. Against God's elect. The point he's trying to make is that there's a sense in which you are beloved of God and precious to him. And do you think of yourself that way? Or do you picture yourself as someone who has signed a card once and therefore you're a Christian? Or you made a decision once and therefore you're a Christian? God wants you to reverse that and say, I am chosen of the Lord, beloved of Him, and precious to Him. Now you begin to have a winning attitude, elect of God. That's putting confidence into your faith. And the last application I would suggest is this. 
learn how to let the benefits of Christ's praying for you flow into your life. Get into the stream of those benefits. See, he's interceding for you right now. Remember when he interceded for Peter? He said, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And he's saying, Mary, I'm praying for you that your patience fail not. George, I'm praying for you that your courage not give out. Mary, Joan, I'm praying for you that your wisdom be increased. The very point of weakness, that place where we are so apt to give in, we know where it is. At that point, Christ is praying. And we need to open up our expectation and be ready to receive the fullness of what Christ is giving. Live in those benefits. Don't hobble along in poverty and weakness and defeat. Why, with such support as this, Christian, why haven't you overcome that besetting sin which clings to you? You can do it. Because you've got such heavenly help in Christ interceding at the right hand of God. Oh, church, limping along in weakness and impotence, why haven't you gotten up and run? Why have not you made yourself known to the city and the world with such a one interceding for you? Christ has made us victors here and in heaven forever and today take the victory live it enjoy it be a winner for Christ you that believe let us pray We bless your name, O God, in that you have richly provided all things necessary for our life and godliness. But we are ashamed that we have limped when we ought to have run, that we have been beaten when we ought to have triumphed, that sin has held the day when the Savior wanted to reign. Oh God, forgive. Thank you for these passages that assure us and give us grace now as we face those hard things, those weak places, those special testings. that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us.